Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Okay, let's turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, and I'm going to just read several verses beginning in verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Jehovah cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march everyone on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, and the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And Jehovah shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of Jehovah is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? I'll stop reading there. Now, we've been studying um, online in our Sunday Bible study, the book of Joel, and we've entered into chapter 2, and we've already looked at the first couple of verses. And now, today, Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at verse 3. But just to go over one important fact for studying Joel 2 is that it's judgment day in view. It's the day of judgment and this great army that is going forth in the day of judgment is God's elect. They're, they're not, um, false prophets. They're, they're not Babylonians. They're, they're not, uh, unsafe people, but they are true believers. They are God's people. And now some people get confused because God used the unsaved, he used Satan and his forces to bring judgment against the church during the time of the Great Tribulation. And, and Satan um, destroyed the churches and congregations and his emissaries through false teaching. That It, it was a, one of the ways that God brought destruction to the corporate church. But here, this is... Chapter 1 of Joel dealt with that. This is chapter 2, and the focus has shifted 
to the judgment on the world. And when it comes to the time where God is judging the world, he's not using false prophets. He's not using the unsaved to judge other unsaved. They're all the objects or the targets of his wrath. And it's a different matter. God instead is using his people as an instrument, as a means of judgment. Now, one way to look at that, because, of course, we're, we don't go around and point the finger at anybody and say, well, you're unsaved and you're unsaved and God's judging you. We still, uh, we, we have no right to do anything like that. The Bible forbids that. There's one God and, and judge and lawgiver, and only he can judge people. All we do is share what the Bible says. And yet one way, a major way God is using all the elect, not only the ones living, but the ones that have lived and died previously as one mighty army, one mighty force is through the fact that he has saved them all. Well, if, if this were the Lamb's book of life, where all the names were recorded of all God's elect. Of course, there is no such book. It's just a figure the Bible uses, but there's there's uh, tens of millions, possibly as many as 200 million people that God saved out of the total of mankind. And let's say that's all their names here in this book, and I'm holding up the Bible, and and there they are, and all through history, God was was bringing people into the world who were in, found in this book and saving them. And then by May 21, 2011, it was like he got to the very last name on the very last page, and he found that person through his word, and that person became saved, and then he completed his salvation program. The last of the elect finally was found, that lost sheep, and and that enabled God to shut heaven's door at that point. Why have the door open when it was only open for these this great multitude, for all those that God determined to save? That enabled God to put out the light of the gospel. There's no need to send forth the shining light of the gospel into the world to evangelize in order that people might hear and become saved. And it... it the fact that he saved the last one enabled him to bring judgment day to pass. And, and so we all are instruments uh, like a, a weapon in God's hands because each one of us are, are one whose name, if we're a child of God, whose name was found in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that makes us part of that mighty army. And so here... At the end of verse 2, it says, A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. So they're called a great people and a strong. Turn back to Genesis 18, and there is a statement made to Abraham concerning his seed and that would be all of the elect that are saved, uh, Christ as the seed, but we're the heirs in him or through him, says in Genesis 18, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great 
and mighty nation or a great and strong nation. That's the same word as in Joel 2. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So the promise to Abraham was that his seed would be as the stars of the heaven for multitude. And they will be a great and strong people. And here in Joel 2, um, in the middle of the verse 2, a great people and a strong. It is the fulfillment of that promise. Here is the completed um, seed that all that were to become saved have now become saved. And this army becomes the saints that Christ judges the world with. He comes with how many saints does the Bible say? Ten thousand. Well, let's, is it 10,000 yeah. or thousands? Thousand. <laughs> In Jude 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. And what does the number ten represent in the Bible? Completeness. So this is the completeness of all the saints. And uh, who's a saint? Um, there, there's saints for everything in, in some churches. They, they make saints. They canonize people after they're dead. Is that what a saint is? Is that how you become a saint? You have to do an awful lot of good works, and then your case will be reviewed by the church, and then maybe 30, 40 years after you're dead, they will grant you sainthood, and you become a saint. Is that the 10,000 saints that Christ is coming with? No. It may be that not one of those saints he comes with because it's very possible that saints that churches make may not even be saved. It's possible a couple of them were, but it's very possible that that most, if not all, are not even saved. Man can't make a saint. God makes saints when he saves because he cleanses, he purifies, he makes holy And that's what the word saint means, to be holy. And when God saves someone, he washes away their sin, and they become holy in God's sight, and they are a saint, as God considers it. And that's who Christ comes with. He comes with his people, the completeness of his people. He doesn't come with uh, 99% of them, but 100% of all the saints. And remember what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where, where God um, has this question asked in verse 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And... There it is again. The saints will judge the world. And in case you miss it, in case you're thinking, well, that's a statue. No. And God goes on to say, if the world shall be judged by you, you're the saint. If you're a true believer, if God has saved you, know ye not that the saints will judge the world. And if the world be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So don't worry about what shirt to put on or what dress to wear or 
all these little things where God has entrusted to his people the judgment of the world. And of course, judgment is discernment. To be able to understand time and judgment is a judgment. In other words, to understand the churches are under judgment, to understand that the world is under judgment, where God's people begin to see this in the Bible, well then, it it is um, making a decision or uh, having an understanding of what the Bible is saying and making judgment. Well, this is what God is teaching through his word as we follow the Bible's methodology of comparing scripture with scripture. So the saints come with Christ. We know that. And Revelation chapter 9 we we have locusts that are in view in the day of judgment and it says in verse 7 concerning the locusts and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle and their heads were as it were crowns like gold and their faces were as the faces of men and it goes on and these locusts are bringing torment for five month period and it is the same if you read what is said of the locusts you'll find similar language that we we read in Joel 2 concerning that great and strong people that mighty army first of all it mentions horses they're like unto horses and look at Joel 2 verse 5 it, it speaks of them going forth as horses and also in Revelation 9 there's a great multitude 200 million and they are going forth in a day of judgment and they are bringing fire and brimstone with them and that again is God's elect and then Revelation 19 verse 19 no Revelation 19 verse 14 says in the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So there is Christ, the rider on white, uh, on a white horse, and the armies of heaven, clothed in fine and white linen, which is the righteousness of saints, the, the complete number of the saints that we read about in Jude. That's who the armies of heaven are. They are the true believers. All right. So when we have all that information and then we see how Joel 2 fits with that and notice as we read through that this mighty army was going forth in a very destructive way and then God made sure we understood when this was taking place in verse 10 when he said the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And when does that happen? immediately after the tribulation. And so that places or pinpoints the timing of this judgment as after the tribulation, the beginning of judgment day. Okay, let's uh, look at verse 3 of Joel 2. It says, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. A fire devours before this mighty army and, and also behind them a flame is burning. Turn to Isaiah 30 
Isaiah 30. And it says, beginning in verse 27, Behold, the name of Jehovah cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue as a devouring fire, and his breath as an overflowing stream shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of vanity, and there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. And then down in verse 30, And Jehovah shall cause his glorious voice to be heard, and shall show the lightning down of his arm with indignation of his anger, and with the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering and tempests and hailstones. And then in verse 33, For Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared, he has made it deep and large, the pile thereof is fire and much wood, the breath of Jehovah like a stream of brimstone doth kindle it. So we we find um, that same language of a fire devouring, and it's related to the breath of God to his tongue, which would be the word of God. It's the word of God that is declaring the judgment, revealing the judgment, and uh, the breath of Jehovah like a stream of brimstone. When when we um, think of Judgment Day as being a time of the falling of fire and brimstone, well, here God defines brimstone that it's kindled by the breath of Jehovah. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word inspiration means God breathed. So if the breath of Jehovah kindles brimstone and the Bible is God breathed, it's his breath, then that means the brimstone is actually coming forth from the Bible itself. It's a spiritual fire that is burning. It's not a literal fire, but it's just indicating that the wrath of God is upon the unsafe people of the world. So a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burneth. Well, we find the word burneth in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, and I'll, I'll read the first three verses. It says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all the do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Jehovah of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And Jesus is the root of Jesse, and he's also the branch of righteousness. So in both cases, it's saying that God will will not leave them Christ or salvation. And then in verse 2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Jehovah of hosts. Now, who's God talking to? To the elect. He's talking to the true believers. It doesn't sound like we're removed from the fight, does it? That we're we're off the, uh, over there somewhere away from the battle. No, as a matter of fact, you're going to tread them down. 
uh, as it says here, you'll, ye shall tread down the wicked. And you know, the word tread down is only found here. The Hebrew word, which is, um, 6072 in Strong's Concordance. But a word that is derived from this, that is related to this, is found, uh, in a couple of places. One is in Joel chapter one. In verse five, it says, and this is, um, it's the identical spelling, identical vowel points, identical consonants, identical word to tread down. In Joel one verse five, awake ye drunkards and weep and howl all ye drinkers of wine because of the new wine. That's the word that is translated as tread down because of the new wine for it is cut off. From your mouth. And that makes sense because how do they make wine? They, they tread upon it. And, and so this word is translated as new wine. But notice it, we, we normally think of wine as the gospel, as the blood of Christ that relates to salvation. But here, the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. It's a very negative association that's being made. Now, that same word is also in Joel 3. Now, if you, if you would look at the chapter of Joel 3, God speaks of harvest. He then says in verse 15, the sun and the moon shall be darkened. So again, we know the period it's talking about after the tribulation. Then in verse 16, Jehovah also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But Jehovah will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Again, judgment day language, Christ in Zion, the body of believers, he indwells all the elect. Therefore, he dwells in Zion. And then verse 17, so shall ye know that I am Jehovah your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore because everyone to be saved has been saved. There is no more corporate body. There is no more wheat and tares mixed together. It's all just the saints. And then in verse 18, and it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of Jehovah and shall water the valley of Shittim. And I've read this before and and you look at the context and it's judgment day and judgment day and then God speaks of the mountains dropping down new wine. But what kind of wine? This is the same word that's found in uh, Malachi as, as tread down the wicked um, and there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. Well, let's look at another place in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 26. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And that's the same word again. That's translated as new wine or tread down. They will be drunken with their own blood 
as with sweet wine. And uh, it seems to be that God is indicating that in the day of judgment, the nature of the gospel changes because it's no longer a gospel that saves. The evangelization of the world is over. But the word that goes forth into the world is a, a, a gospel. It's a word that emphasizes the wrath of God, the judgment of the unsaved. And it's as though this is the sweet wine. This is the new wine of the word of God during this period of time as God. In other words, what is God telling us to proclaim publish Babylon is fallen in Revelation 15. Go forth and pour out the vials of the seven last plagues. This is the sweet wine as in Revelation 10 when he ate the little book. It was sweet in his mouth, sweet as honey, but in his belly it was bitter because there there is no living water coming forth that people might hear and become saved. I, I think that's that's the idea. And well, let's go back to Malachi four verse three. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this saith Jehovah of hosts. So God says that they're going to be ashes under the soles of your feet. And the word ashes can be found also in Ezekiel 28. Before I go to the verse that has that word ashes in it, I just want to show who God is talking to in Ezekiel 28. It says in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. So who is being addressed? Who is this called the the king of Tyrus? And he's been in Eden, the garden of God. There's only two possibilities, Satan or mankind. Mankind. Yeah, mankind. So it's either Satan or mankind. And uh, Mr. Camping has gone over this pretty well and pointed out, as it says in verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub that, that covereth. And and the language, especially that phrase, indicates it's man, it's Adam, it's not Satan that God is addressing, that he's speaking to. Well, in that context, and this would be mankind in general, and it says in verse 15, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. And man was created good, he was created perfect, and then he sinned. Then in verse 17, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And who's who's a king in the Bible spiritually? Believers are prophets, priests, and kings. So here God says he's going to take mankind and cast them to the ground before 
kings. And then it says in verse 18, Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, by bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I'll bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. And that's annihilation, the language of annihilation. So God is is saying that he's going to take mankind that was created in his image, perfectly good, without sin, yet has sin, and finally at the end, he's going to cast mankind down, and as he says, um, I'll bring forth a fire from the midst of thee that will devour thee, and bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And who is beholding them? The kings. The true believers, the elect, just as Malachi 4 says that we will tread underfoot with the soles of our feet or or tread down the wicked with the soles of our feet and they will be ashes in the day that God does this or in judgment day. Of course, he, he doesn't mean literal fire, literal ashes, literal treading them down, but that is what God has done when he ended salvation, he destroyed mankind, he brought them into the condition of hell or a fire, a spiritual fire that has overtaken all the earth, all the world, and and we we don't see it, but men are burning spiritually and they have been destroyed like fire destroys something and turns it to ashes. And and we are uh, going forth with the word of God at this time. And really, it's as though the unsaved are uh, before us in their destruction and we're treading upon them. OK, let's go back to Joel, Joel two. And again, in verse three, a fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Now, when uh, we had our children and they were little and they would wake up on a Saturday morning and go forth through the house and it was like havoc and destruction. But but here God is speaking of the world and he's saying it's like the garden of Eden before them. And behind them, though, once they go through it, it's a desolate wilderness because of the fire is burning everything up. It's destroying everything. And and it, it leaves a wasteland, as Robert was mentioning uh, in his study earlier. It's a spiritual wilderness in the world when there is no salvation. Let's um, think about the Garden of Eden. Uh, first of all, Notice what God says in Isaiah 51 and verse 3. For Jehovah shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of Jehovah. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. 
thanksgiving, and the voice of melody. And again, Zion would be Jerusalem or the body of believers. And here it says God will comfort her and turn the wilderness to Eden. And that's what salvation does or, or what salvation accomplishes. It, it turns the wilderness of this world or the wilderness of an individual into something like the Garden of Eden. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 10, it says there, Hear the word of Jehovah, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him, as a shepherd doth his flock. For Jehovah hath redeemed Jacob, and ransom him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of Jehovah, for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd, and their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. And and here God is speaking of their soul as a watered garden, and that is um, basically what Eden was. If we if we go to Genesis thirteen, Genesis chapter thirteen, it says in verse ten, and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. Before Jehovah destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of Jehovah, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. So the plain of Jordan, which was in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, was well watered, and it was like the garden of Jehovah, and the garden of Jehovah is Eden. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and look at, uh, verse 10 of Genesis 2. Well, verse 8, first of all, says, And Jehovah God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedulin and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And Jehovah God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So Eden was well watered. There was one main river that broke off into four and four would point to the, the entire um, extension, the, the furthest reach of Eden. Everything in Eden was covered by the water. And so when God speaks of something that is well watered, as he says that, that uh, their soul is as a watered garden as he did in Jeremiah 31, He's really making the statement that they have been restored or returned to the Garden of Eden. And that's what salvation does. That is what eternity future is going to bring to pass, isn't it? That's why God says 
in Revelation 22, in, in the first few verses there, uh, Revelation 22, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life. So there's, there's the, the water that will well water the new heaven and new earth, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, when's the last time we read about the tree of life? Where was it? In the Garden of Eden. And now here at the very end of all things or the beginning of the new heaven and new earth and and God bringing in eternity future, here's a, a, a river of water, here's the tree of life bringing forth fruit and these trees. And then he says in verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. So the curse came upon man in the Garden of Eden. The curse is removed in the new heaven and new earth. Here is the new Eden, the well-watered garden that God's people will dwell with him forevermore. And that's how God views eternity future. But um, not for the unsaved people. They, they lost Eden. Mankind lost the garden when they fell into sin. And here in Joel 2 verse 3, the land is as the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. So the fire burns up this beautiful, well-watered garden. Now, it's speaking of the earth. It's speaking of the world. Why? Would God view anything on this world as Eden or typify it as Eden? Because in the time leading up to Judgment Day, to May 21, 2011, the gospel water went out into the world and the, the whole earth was well watered. The, the knowledge of the Lord covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. The, the message of Judgment Day was broadcast into all the nations all over the earth. And and so in a sense, in just the figure, that turned this world outside of the church into a well-watered place. But now the waters um, are not going to help and, and the fruitfulness is gone. Eden is being destroyed by this flame of fire, by God's wrath. And nothing will escape them the word escape relates to salvation. If we go to Romans 2, 3, or it relates to God's judgment and the lack of salvation. In Romans 2, verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them, which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? If you do not escape the judgment of God, then you will experience the judgment of God, you will fall under his wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Lord says in verse 3, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, 
and they shall not escape. And it's a sure judgment that um, the unsaved will experience. No one is going to get away from God. No one's going to get out from under his wrath. And, and certainly no one will be saved in the day of his fierce anger. Let's just look at one last verse in Jeremiah 50. Jeremiah 50. And it says in verse 24, I have laid a snare for thee, and thou art also taken, O Babylon, and thou wast not aware. Thou art found and also caught, because thou hast striven against Jehovah. Jehovah has opened his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord Jehovah of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the utmost border. Open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bullocks, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe unto them, for their day has come, the time of their visitation. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of Jehovah our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all ye that bend the bow, camp against it round about, let none thereof escape. Recompense her according to her work, according to all that she has done, do unto her, for she has been proud against Jehovah, against the Holy One of Israel. So the Lord, first of all, speaks of the voice of them that flee and escape, which would be salvation, God's elect, and it's their voice because they're sharing the things that the Bible says. And then he refers to those, uh, to the Babylonians and he says, let none thereof escape. There is no salvation. Um, there is no uh, getting away from God's wrath. Okay, we'll stop here, and Lord willing, we'll pick up the study in Joel chapter 2 next week in our online uh, Sunday fellowship. But let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your uh, your goodness. We thank you for your word, and Father, we thank you for the future uh, restoration of all things, the the restoration of the Garden of Eden, of the uh, proper uh, nature and order of things with with people that are subservient to you, desiring to obey you, to do your will, that that are not sinners and rebels, that no longer go their own way. And we see what what this has brought uh, to bear in this world when man does things his own way. And, and men have done this since the fall into sin in the garden. And it, it just brings misery. misery and uh, it, it has turned the beautiful Garden of Eden into an awful wasteland. And Father, we look forward with great expectation to the time when the Garden of Eden is restored and you are with us, dwelling with us, and there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more curse of any kind. And and we cannot even imagine 
a world with the absence of those things, and that would be more than than we could ever think of. And yet, eternity uh, and eternal life is far more than the absence of sin, but it is the fullness of life, the fullness of your presence and of knowing you. And Father, we pray that uh, you be with us now the rest of this day as we fellowship with each other and your word and also in this coming week. And, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.